Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gift of life, for the blessing that little Annalise is and will be to Joe and Scott. We pray likewise um, that you will help her to grow to be strong and healthy and to become a follower of the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this blessing. We pray for ourselves that you might open our eyes to see the work of your hands. Help us to understand your word and your purposes and to soften and mould our thinking and our hearts to be in submission to your will. You're the God who is at work. You've got an incredibly wonderful plan. Help us, Lord, to find our place in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Starting a series, we're going to do the first seven chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. And it's going to take us the next, whatever it is, seven, eight weeks. There are connect groups that Pastor David has been putting together and there is material available for that. And he's here somewhere. I assume that's for sale. Where is he? Is it for sale? Uh, Giveaways. Okay, so if you would like a copy of those and see David at the end or they're on the front or something, they can just go grab one and encourage everybody to be either in a life group or in a connect group, which is just a small group for the purpose of this and... Starts and stops, starts and stops, whereas a life group has an ongoing relational base. Our goal, our intent would be to try to encourage everybody to be in some form of small group, life group, connect group, or some other sort of small group where we are encouraging each other in our walk with the Lord Jesus. So this series, in the morning we're starting Samuel, in this evening we start the book of Hebrews, so I encourage you to come along and support that as well and learn from God's word. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 20. We're going to try and cover all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, verse 10, all the way down to there. That's quite a distance. But you've got nothing else to do today, I don't think, do you? Oh, you do. Oh, sorry. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man from Remathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. An Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the first was Hannah. The name of the second was Peninnah. Now Peninnah had children and Hannah was childless. Year after year this man would go up from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It was there that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the Lord's priests. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he used to give meat portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But he would give, this version says, a double portion. It probably should be one portion. We'll talk about that. But he would give a double portion to Hannah because he especially loved her. Now the Lord had not enabled her to have children. Her rival wife used to upset her and make her worry, for the Lord had not enabled her to have children. Peninnah would behave this way year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the Lord's house, Peninnah would upset her so that she would weep and refuse to eat. Finally, her husband Elkanah said to Hannah, Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion in Shiloh, after they had finished eating and drinking, Hannah got up. Now at the time, Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. She was very upset as she prayed to the Lord. 
and she was weeping uncontrollably. She made a vow saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will look with compassion on the suffering of your female servant, remembering me and not forgetting your servant, and give a male child to your servant, then I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. As she continued praying to the Lord, Eli Eli was watching her mouth. Now Hannah was speaking from her heart. Although her lips were moving, her voice was inaudible. Eli therefore thought she was drunk. So he said to her, How often do you intend to get drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah replied, That's not the way it is, my Lord. I am under a great deal of stress. I have drunk neither wine nor beer, neither have I, rather, I have poured out my soul to the Lord. Don't consider your servant a wicked woman, for until now I have spoken from my deep pain and anguish. Eli replied, Go in peace. May the Lord God of Israel grant the request that you have asked of him. She said, May I, your servant, find favour in your sight. So the woman went her way and got something to eat. Her face was no longer looking sad. They got up early the next morning and after worshipping the Lord, they returned to their home at Ramah. Elkanah had marital relations with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and she gave him, named him Samuel, thinking, I asked the Lord for him. It's a great story, isn't it? And it goes on to have a great addition to it, which we will come to. The book of Samuel is overlapping with and occurs at the end of the period of time of the judges. Probably Samson, uh, Samuel's birth corresponds to about the same time that Samson is still around. So it sort of overlaps like that. Okay? And there is the book of Judges reminds us in the end of the book that there is no king in Israel, that everybody was doing their own thing. And the book of Samuel, in fact, is written to address this need of leadership, this need of a king. And if you have a look at chapter 2, verse 10, that's where she gets to in her prophetic prayer, looking ahead. The Philistines are an increasing threat. Israel is a little bit disunited and wondering about the purposes and the blessings of God. And the author of Samuel has us focus on one family within the whole nation, and it's the family of Elkanah. So we're just going to work our way through this. There are four main characters in this story. There are three from the family, Elkanah the husband, Hannah his first wife who didn't have any children so he married another one, Peninnah and she was very fertile and she had a tribe of kids, sons and daughters. And then the, the other character in the story is not a member of the family but he is the chief priest, Eli. And we will find out more about him in the weeks to come and his two sons who are named in this chapter. <clears throat> we focus on one family. At the beginning of the story, verse 1, it reads like this is a man of some means, a man of some wealth. Well, he has two wives. The Old Testament, by the way, does not teach that we should have two wives. Who could cope? No, no, seriously. Seriously, who could cope? Stand up if you think you could cope. <laughs> Elkanah couldn't. In fact, the Old Testament, when it tells this story, whenever it talks about polygamy, it never sort of says, this is wrong, this is forbidden, but it always describes the problems that come with it. One wife is enough trouble, but... <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that. 
I did not mean that. (laughs) A wife is a great blessing. That's what the book of Proverbs says and that's certainly my experience. I'm trying to fill the hole in that I've dug. (laughs) Elkanah, it's rather sad in ways that he, he loved this woman Hannah but she's infertile and she knows and he knows, we know. God did it. God was preventing her having children and it's a great sadness. And because of whatever it is, his means, uh, his necessity, he marries again. Acceptable in that culture, but never God's intention or right will for us. And we are given in verse 1 his list of ancestors, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, and he sounds like a man of importance. Well, John Woodhouse, and many commentators say that, John Woodhouse, I think, insightfully says, actually, all of these people are unknown to us. They're obscure individuals. And until this point, Ramathame, Zophim, as it's translated in verse 1, the twin peaks of the city of Ramath, will be be, um, famous in time to come. It's the home city of Samuel. It's famous because of him. There are some other instances and references. There are five cities of Ramah, in fact, in different tribes and so on. So this one, we are told, particularly is from the tribe of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem, about five miles north of Jerusalem. Um, And John Woodhouse's comment is, all of this information is to indicate to us and underline for us that he, in fact, is a nobody. He's an insignificant, we don't know him. Nobody knows him. We don't know him. And the readers of the Old Testament, when they first got this book, they would have gone, who is this? We don't know who this is. That's the point. God is going to use a nobody. God is going to use someone who is insignificant, someone just from amongst all the ordinary people of Israel. God is going to work his purposes out. That's supposed to grab our attention. His unimportance is important. And we are to note it. John Woodhouse comments, and I agree with him. 1 Samuel is a story about a God who's going to make something out of nothing. Takes life out of death, richness out of somebody. Somebody he's going to turn from a nobody. That's certainly the theme of the prayer in chapter 2 and hopefully we'll get to it this morning. Verse 2 tells us a little bit about his home life, which I've already indicated. He had two wives. Hannah, the first wife, childless, so he marries again. Peninnah. Um, and she has many, many children. This family, year by year, would travel to Shiloh, which was a journey that they would have gone north, away from Jerusalem. They're five miles north of uh, Jerusalem. Shiloh was another 15 miles north, 20 miles from Jerusalem, straight up. That's about where Shiloh is, middle of the land of Israel in your minds, and that's where the tabernacle had been placed back in the days of Joshua and had been there for some centuries now. There is an annual feast that Elkanah and his family goes up to celebrate. We don't know if this is one of the three annual feasts that the men of Israel were required to appear before the Lord in. Or in fact, this one reads like it's his own personal family pilgrimage that he did annually. Later in the story, verse 21 and following, it'll talk about how he had a vow and he fulfilled it annually. And so on one of these occasions, year by year, the family would trek to Shiloh indicating that Elkanah was a man who took God very seriously. In the midst of no king, in the midst of disunity and where people are doing bad things, think of the days of the judges, Elkanah was a believer in God who revered him, who treated his wives, both of them, properly, fairly, 
He didn't neglect Peninnah, though he married her second. But he does discriminate a little bit. Verse 5, depending on how we translate it, uh, that he would give Hannah a portion of food. This version, the NET says, and many versions say, a double portion. That must have been a little bit irritating for Peninnah. That she was second wife and she was the one who gave the family, but he loved her. That must have led to some sort of rivalry and that's an appropriate conclusion. That's what happens in polygamous marriages. It's competition and jealousy. Well, um, whether it was one portion or a double portion doesn't really matter. In the process of doing it, he clearly indicated that he loved her, even though Verse 5, the Lord had not enabled her to have children. He loved her. And his perspective, he loved God as well. Elkanah's perspective was that God did this. For some reason, God was not enabling her to have children. And it was her problem, not his, because he fathered other children with his second wife. Must have been a great sadness, certainly to her and also to him. Notice he doesn't blame her, he's not resentful, he continues to love her and he continues to love and trust God. That's the perspective we need to have as followers of the Lord Jesus. Take God seriously and when life hands you a lemon is to realise and recognise the sovereign hand of God. That all things that come into our life, good things and bad things, either come directly from God to achieve his purposes or they come indirectly from him via his heavenly throne. All things are father tested. This has his permission, his stamp of allowance on it. That can be a difficult pill to swallow, but I personally find that a great comfort that in the midst of life's traumas, there is someone on the throne who knows and who is in control and I trust him. This is the example for us to follow. One commentator also points out that the fact that she was childless was an indication that something's wrong, not just biologically, something's wrong in the nation. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, let me read to you this paragraph, verses 12 to 15. This is God's promise to his covenant people, Israel, before they go into the promised land. Through Moses, God says, If you obey these ordinances excuse me, all these commands that I'm giving you today and you're careful to do them, the Lord your God will faithfully keep covenant with you as you promised your ancestors. He will love and bless you and make you numerous. He will bless you with many children, with the produce of your soil, grain, new wine, oil, offspring, oxen and the young flocks of your land he will, uh, as he promised your ancestors to give you. Verse 14, you will be blessed beyond all people. There will be no barrenness among you or your livestock. There will be no barrenness among you. There had been in Israel's history, hadn't there, with Sarah not being able to produce a child and then miraculously produces Isaac and then Isaac marries Rebecca and she can't have children and he prays and then she's able to and then hers, um, who was it, Rachel, she can't have children. There had been in Israel's previous history and here is God's promise obey me and fulfill the laws that I've given you walk in my ways and there'll be no barrenness among you protect you from all sickness you won't experience any of the terrible diseases you knew in Egypt instead I'll inflict those on your enemies on those who hate you so here is Hannah God-fearer Elkanah 
a man who loved God and she's barren. God said, no, this wouldn't happen. But it was happening, indicating something's not right. Something's not right in the nation. It may be there's something not right in their life. It may mean that. But I think generally it's a point to the truth that something's not right. They're not walking in. The people are not walking into obedience with God and his covenant. That's why sometimes too, just as a sidelight, why God allows trouble into our life, doesn't it? That's because we've sinned. It's because we've done something we shouldn't have done. And God will bring trouble to discipline us, to get us back on course, to drive us back to him. Not the only reason, but it's a reason. Sometimes God allows trouble into our life for no other reason, not because we have flawed, not because we have sinned or stumbled, but simply because he's using difficulties to humble us. Walking in his ways, we can still experience life's traumas. Jesus certainly did, and he was sinless. Or this story is going to tell us, and I think encouragingly, sometimes God allows difficulties in our life uh, not because of sin, not because he's necessarily just wanting to humble us, but because he's working in our life and he's allowing these things to happen because like the master chess player that he would be, he is setting, using you to set up his next move. God may give you an overwhelming burden crisis, difficulty, where unbelievers looking on can't believe how calm you are, how committed you are to still loving and serving God. And God uses your response in the crisis to challenge them. That's the master chess player using life circumstances to achieve his purposes. And that's certainly what he's going to do through Hannah. God stopped her having children it drove her to God, her to him in prayer and he answered her prayer. It's all in his timing. And he brings a man into the world who's going to bring deliverance and direction to his ancient people. God will do that again through Jesus. So Elkanah, a man who feared God, a man who loved God in the midst of life's trauma and circumstances, sees God's hand in these circumstances, continues to annually, Worship God and walk in his ways. Verse 6. This religious experience, this annual pilgrimage, did not seem to have too much of a spiritual benefit upon Pananah. Her rival wife, verse 6, used to upset her, tease her, irritate her, say terrible things, awful things, make her worry because the Lord had not enabled her to have children. Pananah would behave this way year after year. This religious experience of going to Shiloh annually must have become not Hannah's favourite time of the year. It's interesting, isn't it? Another person's response to what God was doing, what God was allowing, in this case, it's a sinful response. It's a terrible response. You can understand it on the human level, but that doesn't certainly not justify it. It's wrong. And Dale Ralph Davis, who's a good Old Testament commentator, he gives some very insightful things. Imagine sitting at the table, these sorts of things that may have been exchanged between them. When Peninnah says to her children, when the food is being distributed, now, do all of you children have food? Hannah's sitting right there. Do all of you children have food? Mummy, says one of the little children. Miss Hannah doesn't have 
Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What was that, dear? Just say that again. And she repeats it. Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Another child says. Oh, very much, says Peninnah. Don't you, Hannah? You want children. Gets cruel, doesn't it? You could imagine it. A little child asks, Why not? Why doesn't she have children? Peninnah's answer, Because God won't let her. Doesn't God like her? I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? Do you think God cares for you? Do you continue to worship this God who won't give you the one thing that you want? He doesn't care about you, Hannah. It's easy to imagine that sort of conversation going on and it's, we don't know exactly what it was, but it was enough certainly to not only put the knife in but to twist it. It was intended to hurt and it did year after year after year. How remarkable Hannah's response in the light of that. Verse 7 says that she would weep. It upset her. She lost her appetite. We've all had that experience, haven't we? You're so upset you just don't feel like eating. Then one day, this focus on this family now moves to one time in the year when they had gone to Shiloh and this whole thing had repeated itself and on this occasion, we're not told if it had happened on previous occasions, but on this day, verse 8, Elkanah, good old confused Elkanah, typical husband, isn't he? But he's tender and he's gentle and he knows he's powerless to change the situation but he continues to love her. He doesn't understand. Why are you weeping? Why aren't you eating? Why are you sad? Is it me? Aren't I more important to you than ten sons? An idiom for saying, aren't I more important to you than, you know, all of those things, all of God's blessings? Don't I mean more to you? Obviously, that indicates to me that this conversation went on without him knowing. It was more subtle, more secretive, more behind the scenes. So perhaps not at the table where he would have been present. On this occasion, she responds to his loving inquiries, gentle prodding, and she does eat something, verse 9, but this time she's going to do something. She rose from the table and she's heading for the temple. Change of scenes now, like in a movie. You now flip to the scenes of the temple court uh, doorway and there is Eli, the chief priest, sitting on a chair beside the doorway, which is now a little bit more substantial than the tabernacle, perhaps a little bit more permanent because it's been there for decades, if not centuries. And he's sitting there. He's now elderly. Eyesight's dimming, as we'll find out in chapters to come. And he's unhealthy. He's large and he's overweight. I don't see what was particularly funny about that comment. All of you Pananas who are present. You'll discover that, that we read is by the time we come to chapter 3 or 4. Sitting in the doorway, fulfilling his priestly duties, I would imagine. And then back to Hannah. She walks through the doorway. She walks in. I don't know if she notices him or not, but she goes and she appears before God, probably like Luke 18. She raises her hands in a eyes to heaven and she pours out her heart her lips are moving she's whispering mouthing the words but there's no audible sound not that Eli can hear and we're actually given the privilege we hear what she prays God heard it and God tells us what she prayed verse 11 and poor Eli who was straining watching 
watching her sob and tremble and maybe sway and he misunderstands, he incorrectly concludes that she's full, she's drunk. And perhaps from previous experiences where other people have come to the temple and been mocking and been abusive and he in a moment will rebuke her. We'll come to that in a moment. Here is Hannah, back to verse 10. Deeply distressed, dissatisfied, goes to the only place you often can go in these circumstances. She goes to God. She knew that God had closed her womb, but she prayed. It wasn't fatalism. A belief in God's sovereignty is to be matched with a belief in God's goodness. These terrible things happen in my life. I'm not simply to passively accept it and do nothing about it. I am to submissively accept them. But I still have the right to talk to my Heavenly Father about these things. Jesus did and Hannah does here. She says, can we change the plan please? Can I have a son? You are a sovereign God and you are good. That's what you're like. This is what you can do. I know that you're at work in all circumstances, please. This is my request, your will be done. That's the attitude of her prayer. Magnificently she prays for the first chapter in the Bible where the Lord of hosts is mentioned, second time in this chapter that it's mentioned, and it's a magnificent title of the Lord that I just want to give you an expansion on. The Lord of hosts. Commentators are a little bit, um, how do we explain this? So there's not great unanimity but there's no reason for us not to compile all three understandings some people say lord of hosts is referring to you're the lord of the heavenly armies the angels lord of hosts the hosts of heaven belong to you and you're the captain of the host certainly means that but heaven the lord of hosts can also be a creation reference where you're the god who created the heavens and filled them with planets and stars and meteors and comets you're the lord of hosts the Lord of creation. But hosts can also refer to the armies of Israel, that you're Lord of the peoples and tribes of Israel. Now put all of those together and you'll get a picture, I think, of what this phrase is alluding to. He's God Almighty. He is the one who created the heavens and filled them. He is the one who commands heaven's armies and he is the one who calls the 12 tribes to form a league of nations, Israel. Lord of hosts, sovereign God, look on my affliction. Do what you did in the land of Egypt. You looked and you remembered and you delivered them. Do it for me. Remember me. Not that God has forgotten me, but rather act on my behalf. Let's change the plan. Can you give me a child? And if you do, I vow I will give him to you all the days of his life. She's not bribing God. You do this for me, it's what I'll do for you. It's not that. It's rather an attitude of submission. Lord, if you bless me this way, then I, in a full obedience and total consecration to you, will send him back, offer him to you as lifelong service. It's interesting that a mother, a parent, is making this vow on behalf of the child. She's not bargaining. She acknowledges that it's the Lord of hosts, can't manipulate him. I am your servant. She's very specific and she acknowledges that no one else can do it. We hear that prayer. Eli doesn't. And he misunderstands her to be a drunken person and so he rebukes her. 
and she corrects him, verse 15 and 16. She said, no, 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 no. I haven't poured in wine out and drunk it. I have really poured out my heart to the Lord. I am distraught, distressed. He takes that verse 7 and says, go in peace. May God grant you your petition. And then she's pleased and she is relieved. Verse 18, please note that when she leaves the temple, her face was no longer sad and she went to get something to eat. Her prayer, where she poured out her heart to God sincerely, in simplicity, specifically, changed her. Burden was lifted. She'd been transformed already. Hadn't got the answer to prayer yet, but she'd already been changed. Evelyn Christensen wrote a book called What Happens When Women Pray? It's an old book now, I don't know, 20, 30 years old. And one of the main premises of her book is that when we pray, God changes things. And the main thing that God changes is us. When we pray about circumstances and situations, God works. He changes things. And often the one he changes is us. Changes our attitudes, changes our perspective, gives us an acceptance of it. And so the New Testament invites us to do exactly the same thing, to cast all of our cares upon him because he does care for us and then promises us that God will lift us up in due time if we humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Hannah certainly did that. There is a scene change, verse 19 and 20, that's early the next morning, the family is leaving. So she goes to the temple the day before she knows she's to return home. They get up early, they worship God, and then they travel home. Verse 19 is God's remarkable answer to her prayer. Perhaps weeks, certainly within months, within three months at the outside, God remembers her. God orchestrates the circumstances of her life so that she does fall pregnant. And I know it's within a few months because 12 months later, she has already given birth to Samson, uh, Samuel, verse 20. And then in verse 21... At the appointed time, the annual trip back to Shiloh is on again and Samuel has already been born. So within months of her returning, she is expecting and God had heard and answered her prayer. God had done something. What do we learn from this? Well, it's worth considering the life of Elkanah, meditate on his reactions and what he was like. You can certainly benefit from reflecting on that. Reflect on the life of Hannah, What did she do when she was in his distress? Would she do the same thing? She prays and she's heard. That's encouraging. She wasn't heard though. Listen carefully. She wasn't heard in the affirmative because she was sincere. We need to be sincere. But that doesn't manipulate God. She was heard, but not because she was desperate. She was heard not because she promised or made the vow. She was heard and answered in the affirmative because it was God's will. Because God had sovereignly chosen that he would work this way. When he says no, he's doing the same thing. He is working his sovereign will out. He is God. That's why James says in 5.13, Is anyone among you in trouble? They should pray. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. So Samuel is born. Elkanah returns to Shiloh. Um, Hannah says, verse 22 and following, that she will not return to Shiloh until the child is weaned. That's about two, three, and maybe even up to four years. Wow. How would you like to breastfeed a child for that long? Apparently they did back in those days. But during all of those times, two, three, four years, 
She fed him, she bathed him, she clothed him, she prayed for him and she would have taught him. She had an influence on his life as all good mothers, all good parents do. Encourage you to do that with your kids. And then she keeps her word at the end of the chapter. You can read it, 24 to 28. She does take her young boy, who was a young boy, we are told in verse 24, that he was still young. We're drawing attention to the fact she does not needlessly delay her fulfilment of her promise to God. She, even when he was a youngster, 2, 3, 4, she hands him over. Can you imagine that? Let's make him four. The outside, the eldest he could probably be. You take a four-year-old, my granddaughter is three. I can't imagine my son taking Eleanor to the local Baptist church and giving her to the senior pastor. I'd kill him. No, seriously, I would. I'd kill him. It's a different time, isn't it? Different age. But look at the great trust there must be in Hannah's heart. Who's she trusting? Eli to be the father? Good grief. She's trusting God somehow that even through somebody as incompetent as you'll discover Eli is or as wicked as his sons are, that God will keep her son, Samuel, faithful to him. The chapter ends beautifully. Now I dedicate him to the Lord. From this time on he is consecrated and given to the Lord to serve him. Then they worship the Lord there. That's submission, isn't it? It's a wonderful chapter which will teach us something significant if it has not already. Let me say this to you before I jump through chapter 2 very, very quickly. God used an unknown woman, Hannah, who's now very famous. But back then, God used an unknown woman to bring into the world a man, child, who will bring correction and direction to God's people. God works in the ordinary. He works with nobody. He works with people with flaws. God will do it again. He'll use another woman unknown but now very famous, to bring into the world a man who will bring correction and direction and salvation to God's people, Jesus. She is a forerunner, an indication of uh, micro-salvation, if you like, a small picture that God is the deliverer and he's working his purposes out. Hannah's story is a reflection of Israel's story, that as she was mocked, they were mocked. She didn't have a son, they didn't have a king. And God looked on her affliction, God would look on the affliction of his people Israel. And as God delivered her, God would deliver his people Israel and he'll deliver us from sin in our world. Her prayer, she prays, verse 1, she's transformed. My heart rejoices in the Lord. No longer sad, no longer not eating. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted high because of the Lord. I loudly dance my enemies. I am victorious because of what he has done. I have triumphed over them. I am happy that you have delivered me. Verse 2, she says that there is no one like God. What do you think of God? Use this prayer to evaluate your perspective, your mindset. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no other like you. There is no rock like our God. Perfect in holiness, moral perfection, but also strong to protect and to hold secure. He is without rival. Therefore, how foolish of us to behave or to act in ways if he was not morally perfect or the safest secure. The phrase she uses uh, in verse 2, that there is no rock like our God. One of the versions translates that, that 
Uh, You're safer than the highest mountain. God protects his own to achieve his purposes. No one is like him. Verse 3, he is a God who was at work in this world. Don't keep speaking arrogantly. Let no proud talk come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God who knows. He evaluates what people do. He is a God who is at work. He knows and he weighs our actions and our thoughts and our words. He's doing that now. Human pride, human arrogance is a form of pretending. Pretending to be better and bigger, more capable than we really are. And the reality is, God knows. Our attitudes of pride and arrogance must stop because God knows the truth. Our self-centeredness, our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance, our self-confidence... If we truly believe in God, not just say we believe in God, but truly believe in God like Hannah does, then we'll be transformed to cast our cares on him and to trust him to work his purposes out and to do that in the days of our lives. Verses 4 to 8, she gives lots of examples of how God is the great reverser. This God who is sovereign, who is good, who is unique, who protects This God is at work in the world, reversing situations. That which is powerful, he can make weak. That which is weak, he can make strong. That which is poor, he can make rich. Those who are rich and prestigious, he can bring low. Those who are alive, he can send down to Sheol. Those who are in Sheol, verse 6, he can bring up from the dead. That's a remarkable statement. Old Testament liberal scholars say there is no reference to the resurrection in the Old Testament. Well, here is a Pretty close indication. Our God is a sovereign God. He can reverse whatever is going on. He can reverse what's going on in your life. You can have a life of comfort and of ease and of plenty. He can reverse it. He can take it all away. Why would he do that? Because he hates us? No. Because he's got a purpose that he's going to work out. It could be because of sin. It could be because he wants to humble you. It could be because he wants to use you to achieve his purposes that others looking on will see how do you respond to life's reversals. This God, Hannah's God that she's praying to is the God who is at work in our world, who listens, who notes, who often takes us beyond that which we are able to cope with. I've said this before and I know some of you don't believe it and I'm open to correction but I, I do believe this. And God will lead us in our life to the edge of the cliff. And when you get to the edge of the cliff and you're scared stiff and life is going to fall apart, what does he do? Well, he may wrap his arms around you and secure you and hold you in that very tenuous, scary situation for quite a while. He may do that. There are some people, there are some circumstances of life, he takes you to the edge and when you get to the edge you say, Lord, deliver me, he pushes Why does he do that? So that he can catch you. So that you will rely fully on him. Not saying that you'll rely on him, but actually find yourself like Hannah, casting your cares to him because you have nowhere else to go. For most of us in our very affluent, comfortable society, we have lots of options. If God doesn't answer this prayer, well, I've still got my money in the bank. I still have friends. I still have social security. I've got lots of other options. I don't need God. Not really. God can take that away. 
so that you will become like this. I have to rely on him. That's what he wants. That's why he made you. That's what he intends. That's what she realises and what she prays. Verse 8, he is the creator God. He planted the pillars of the earth and he places the world on it. He made it, he runs it, he owns it. And in this world, verse 9, there are two people, those who are faithful to him and those who rebel against him. Those who are faithful to him in the end win because he keeps them. He'll push, but he'll catch. For the unbelievers in this world, sometimes he will push and they don't want him to catch and they're destroyed. And that's what will happen ultimately, eternally, for those who do not cast their cares upon him. In the end, Hannah's prayer teaches us it's not the strong, it's not the powerful, it's not the wealthy, it's not the famous, it's not the successful, it's not those with the most toys wins, it's those who belong to God, those who have a relationship with him. Verse 10 says that he will judge all of the earth. And then, she says, the Lord executes judgments to the ends of the earth. He will strengthen his king and exalt the power of his anointed one, his Messiah. He will strengthen his Hannah. 1050 BC, no king in Israel. King had been anticipated, king had been tried and failed, no king in Israel. Judges. She, prophetically looking ahead, knows God's timetable. He's going to bring a king and he will exalt this king who will not only be the judge over all of the earth, but who will be strengthened and who will reign. Who do you think that is? Jesus. She's looking ahead prophetically to him. We don't have time, but let me encourage you to read Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 45. Mary's magnificent. She prays a very similar thing. If you read that, Luke 1, 46 and following, and think of Hannah, you'll get amazing parallels. Let me close with this. This God is the creator of all things. He knows all things. He knows you. He knows your situation exactly. And he weighs all deeds. He weighs how you respond. And he will certainly hold us to account and judge the whole world. This God is at work in the world and in our life circumstances, good and bad. And he is directing history. He responds to and uses prayer to line us up with his purposes of what he's trying to do. And he is a God because he is sovereign and because he is good who is to be praised and who is to be adored. That's what Hannah teaches us. There are lots of examples, but primarily she points us to the sovereign God to cast our cares upon him and to trust him to work out his purposes for the good of his people. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we bow in your presence, acknowledging that you alone sit on the throne of heaven, that you are the Lord of hosts, and that you command all. Nothing is too hard for you, nothing is impossible to you. We praise you that you heard and intervened in the life of Hannah for your goodwill and purposes to bring a deliverer to your people Israel. We bless you that you looked upon our affliction and you sent Jesus 
to redeem us, to adopt us and now to achieve your purposes in this world through us. So Lord, we find ourselves in your presence again and like Hannah, like Samuel, wanting to consecrate ourselves to you, to serve you all the days of our life, casting our cares on you and accepting your sovereign will. Lord, may your will be done and may your son be glorified. For we pray it in his great name. Amen.